Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So, JL, we were just talking about the uh, the doping controversy that's happening at the Winter Olympics. Okay. Now I'm watching. The alleged uh, explanation is that... Uh, she used a glass after him that had residue of the medication. The Eastern Bloc styles, they often dope these athletes, especially the minors, without their knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's completely natural that you would just, you know, when you're around your grandpa's place, you just chug some of his angina medicine. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself, living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Santra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. So JL, how's it going this week? It's going well, man. It's going well. We're having some uh, flashes of spring this week in New York City. I think we're supposed to get to 50s, 60s by the end of the week. I saw that we had a big drop in Omicron cases, so that's very encouraging. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the end of this pandemic, man, and maybe trying to get back to a more normal life in 2022. That would be awesome. My one word of warning is I took Greek in college, and I have to tell you that Omicron is not the last letter in the Greek <laughs> alphabet. <laughs> When we get to Omega, we're all in big trouble. Uh, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, uh, like you say, we are getting back to some sense of normalcy. And I agree, the Omicron drop-off has been wonderful to see. You'll know we're in real trouble when it's Omicron 2, right? So you've gone around the alphabet. That's when you're in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, the, the sequel is never as good as the original, so that will be bad. So actually, speaking of like movies and TV shows, in our last episode, we were talking, we were dating ourselves. We were talking about Seinfeld. I don't know if we're elder millennials. I actually, I think I'm Gen X, but regardless. Uh, I'm an Xer about, for sure. There we go, a proud yeah. Xer, a proud Xer yeah. at that. That's right. Say it loud and proud. I like it. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about the episode where um, Elaine gets into more and more trouble trying to sneak a peek in her physical written medical chart, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I thought today, we thought that we'd have a little bit more fun with this and kind of go down the TV road a little farther and ask our question of the day, which is, what do they get wrong in medical TV shows? Mm. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, part of, I think, the, the reason this came up was a very long discussion that we ended up having with the production team about <laughs> the stethoscope in our show logo. And yes. I think the point that I wanted to make, and I think we, we are going to make in this episode, is that the deal, the details really matter when you're a professional and you're yeah. looking at something. So in our logo, if you if you check our website, uh, we use a stethoscope to ask the question of, is it serious? And what a lot of people didn't understand 
understand was, as I'm looking at that image and as you're looking at that image, we see many different things. Most yes. people see just a stethoscope. But, uh, you know, I remember in our journey, there's lots of different types of stethoscopes. So they're little, uh, at the beginning of medical school, you often get like a little junky one. Sometimes you might get it from a, dr- a drug company for free. Then as you move along in medical school, you realize, hey, this stethoscope sucks. So you sort of upgrade <laughs> and you get a better one. Yes. Um, and then if you end up in a specialty like ours, internal medicine, where you're actually listening to hearts, you often upgrade again. You usually get like the cardiology, the really nice yes. thick stethoscope. So yes. it was interesting. You know, I was telling the production team, like, put, I want a, I want a cardiology <laughs> stethoscope. And they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> That's right. No, honestly, this means a lot to me because when I, when I sort of graduated and became a quote unquote real doctor, my wife, who's a physician, her gift to me was exactly that. It was the cardiology three Ah, uh, the upgrade. Just, I know, right? It's like the Cadillac of stethoscopes. And so the real, real ones, no. But, you know, the other thing is, and I know you're sensitive to this issue, so we're we're internists, right? Like we, we pride ourselves on being able to use our stethoscopes properly. You also have to wear it properly. Yep. And again, I, to kind of pull back the curtain for our audience, like there's almost like this tension within healthcare where, you know, internists like us, like if a surgeon wanted to insult us, they might call our stethoscope a dog collar uh, the way it's it's worn around our neck, right? But that's, even that's not really the proper way to wear it. That is not. That is not. And and I would argue it is one of the most cliche medical images that you'll ever see. If somebody wants to establish that they're like a medical something, yes. they will wear the dog collar around the neck. So one part of your stethoscope is on this side, the other part's on that side. But what people don't understand is that actually destroys the stethoscope. I, I, I've never able to figure it out, but I think it's the oils in your skin are exposed to the rubber of the stethoscope oh, and make it very brittle over time. Yeah. So what r- real doctors do and real doctors who listen to patients' hearts is you do one of two things. You either fold it up and put it in your doctor coat pocket. You have a big pocket so you can put it in. But if you're really, really hardcore and you're listening to a lot of hearts, you actually wear the stethoscope around your neck. You put the earpieces behind your neck and then you let it dangle from your neck like a tie. When you see somebody doing uh, wearing a stethoscope in that way, you know that is a serious, real doctor. That's a, that's old school. Actually, one of my favorite attendings in medical school, he actually wore it slightly like in front of that jail. So you know how like Frankenstein has like the bolts coming out of his neck? So this uh-huh. guy constantly had it like in his neck so much. So <laughs> I was like, how is he getting blood flow to his brain? But, but you know, it was like he got calloused and, and he just wore it like that. And you're right. It was like actually incredibly impressive to see. Like you're like, that guy commands respect. And um, yeah, to be honest with you, I think doctors are a little touchy about stethoscopes right now because this has been my experience in COVID. Mm-hmm. Is when I go to see someone who I know has COVID, the last thing I want to do is take my stethoscope, listen to them, and then go listen to someone else because then you're becoming Absolutely. the vector of disease, right? So it's very, very common in these isolation rooms that were given, back to your earlier reference, what I call the Fisher-Price my first stethoscope. It's this yellow <laughs> plastic tubing. You can barely hear anything, but the advantage is it's for that patient, that patient only, so you're not contagious around the hospital. So kind of uh, you know, plus and minus there, but I think that's the reason right now in particular doctors are very, very stethoscope sensitive. Absolutely. All right. That's fantastic. And again, I think, you know, we started talking about that and we started saying, hey, what else do people get wrong about medicine? What other images are are incorrect? And we started talking about the fact that television gets a lot of things wrong. So we wanted to dedicate today's episode to what do they get wrong about medicine or healthcare in TV? Yeah. You know, they have to be doing something right. Uh, we're going to be kind of picking this apart a little bit um, as professionals. But, you know, just the... Um 
persistence of these shows, JL, on TV, until we started researching this, I was actually unaware, I was ignorant, how long this has been a staple on television. Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. going back to like the 1950s, turns out there was a show came out in 52 called City Hospital. And then basically since then, there has been a medical show or shows, like multiple shows, on American television without any interruption or pause. Wow. So General Hospital, right? That's the longest running daytime soap opera of any kind. And, you know, it's based around this premise of all the things that are happening inside and outside a hospital. And then um, we're going to date ourselves a little bit. Now, we just established that you and I are Gen Xers. Um, mm -hmm. I already feel old because um, Super Bowl halftime show just happened. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Dre and Snoop and Eminem performed. And apparently the, the youngins were like, who are these guys? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel ancient. But my point is, even you and I, as old as we might be, we're not around for Dr. Kildare which was apparently like the new hotness back in the mid 60s. And, you know, when I read about the show, it actually is really cool. So the, the story arc is it followed this uh, physician's career trajectory. So it starts with Dr. Kildare as an intern at this fictional hospital called Blair General. And he's trying to learn his craft and earn the respect of his you know senior attendings and stuff. And then he gets mm -hmm. promoted. He kind of moves his way up the academic chain and his career advancement is the engine that drives the, the show narrative. Interesting. I thought it was a really cool way uh, of doing it. Even at the time, I would say it was pretty progressive and even controversial. Absolutely. Interesting. And we'll talk about that one second, but I just wanted to go back and say, you know, it's amazing to think about a show that started recording in 1952 or 1963. Think about how much the profession has changed, right? Yes, I mean, yes. that's that's before that's before my dad was training, you know? So right. you're talking about going like way, way back and fundamentally different approaches to patients and providers interacting, right? The idea of sharing your information, you're sharing your medical records. We're going to do a whole episode on that, right? Uh, you know, the idea that a doctor would share with you is, is totally foreign. So it's fascinating. I think I'll see if I can find one of these older episodes and to see how different it was back then, you know? But going back to what you're saying, you know, it, it, it is amazing how even progressive some of these shows could be. So, you know, Dr. Kildare had episodes about sexually transmitted infections infections, STIs, sometimes people call them STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, if you're of a certain age. And what's fascinating about this from our research is that the episodes about STIs were personally requested by the president of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. Can you imagine that? And that there were episodes about the birth control pill that were written and never produced due to network objections. And it's crazy to think like the network actually had more power than the president uh, to talk talk about these important issues. And again, I mean, I'm born in 1970, so this is before I'm even alive. So it's crazy right. to think that, like, you know, we were talking about these issues even then. And what's even more interesting is that technical advice was provided by the American Medical Association, the AMA. And then the name AMA actually ended up in the end credits for every episode. And it's fascinating to think about this blurring of lines between education and entertainment. Sometimes we might even call it infotainment. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what makes it hard actually sometimes to discern what you can trust and what you can't on these shows. But, you know, a couple of things there, one of which is clearly there is some constant attraction to this kind of content that has kept it on the air, to your point now, for well over a half century uh, before mm -hmm. you and I were born. And, you know, again, all credit to LBJ. I really had no idea he was quite that progressive, uh, although apparently got censored by the network, like you say. I've never seen Dr. Kildare, if I'm honest. One show I have seen and I have a really soft spot for is M.A.S.H., of course, um, yeah. 
I have really fond memories. My, my dad died when I was 14, but MASH was a show we used to watch together, which I think sort of kind of seared it in my brain with nostalgia. And again, it's, it's hard to overestimate just how huge that show was. It was a very clever show. It was obviously set during the Korean War, but began filming when the Vietnam War was still ongoing and sort mm-hmm. of um, you know, levied very uh, clever critiques at a lot of things, uh, including, of course, military action, but also uh, medicine. Uh, you know, set, set in a military field hospital. And um, its series finale, I had to remind myself of this. So the episode was called uh, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. It had over 100 million viewers. Wow. And this is in, uh, I think, 1983. And again, we're dating ourselves, but it used to be the case that, you know, television was almost this monolith and there weren't that many channels. The popular shows were really popular and there, there weren't a mm-hmm. whole lot of other options. Like things weren't fragmented by you know, streaming and social media and internet. So this this show, it was the most watched show in U.S. broadcast history from like 83 to 2010. And it's about a bunch of doctors uh, during the Korean War. It's just it's staggering. And it was it was so well done. I actually loved uh, Hawkeye Pierce, who was played by Alan Alda. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought he was a really uh, cool character. And then, again, reading about the details of the show, the production was interesting because they really went back and forth about should they have a laugh track. And oh. um, <laughs> apparently the network suits were like, well, you can't you can't possibly have a comedy without a laugh track. And I think the producers were like, well, you know, we're showing people like in surgery from like war trauma. So we're not entirely sure we want to be yucking it up, you know, uh, on the audio. And it's just really fascinating. I think that show also blurred the lines between comedy and drama, which as we'll discuss uh, some other uh, medical shows have done as well. A- amazing, right? I mean, 100 million viewers. There were probably, what, 200 million viewers altogether at that time. So you're talking right. like 50 percent of people watching the show. It's amazing. I know. Another interesting one that I would say was actually strangely influential to me was Doogie Howser, right? Neil <laughs> yes. Patrick Harris, who yes. is, I, I'm pretty sure, a Gen Xer, right? Yes. And this notion that this 12-year-old kid or 13-year-old kid could go to medical school and, you know, be a genius and take care of patients. I, I have to say, I was actually influenced by that. And the funny thing is, too, like, he invented blogging. He had this computer diary. <laughs> yes. And and it's so funny to think about these things that you saw 30 years ago. And you're like, wow, that's that's actually my reality now. I knew I was aging jail as a doctor because I used to get comments that I was doogie and I haven't heard those now in many years. So I know that the, <laughs> I know the career is taking a toll on me, but very early on, that's, that was the, the comment I got. And I, then, I can believe that. I can believe oh, that. Oh, thanks man. Appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you know, one show that I think stands out actually for its accuracy and, and it did a, an incredible sort of tightrope walk between being very popular, but also like very true to life was mm-hmm. ER. You know, that show had a huge influence on me. In the very first season, Dr. Green is instructing Dr. Carter on doing a lumbar puncture. Some people know it as a spinal tap, which is, you know, really a tricky procedure. I think it was a meningitis patient they were treating. And he used the phrase, see one, do one, teach one. And that resonates with us. Uh, You know, we're both nodding right now because that is actually something you hear in medical training. And apparently when this aired, people are like, oh, what a what a nifty phrase that the writers of ER came up with. But, you know, that was was taken (laughs) from the way we learn. And I know it sounds crazy that you would just see someone put a needle on someone's back and then you would do it yourself and then you would teach someone else. That's the way it goes, you know? I'm not trying to make it sound cavalier, but so much of medicine is this iterative learning where we pass on what we have uh, sort of gained to the next person in line. It's just, it's this beautiful sort of continuous chain of one trainee teaching the next. 
And, and there's a variation on see one, do one, teach one, which is see one, do one, screw one up, <laughs> then teach one, right? Yes. I, I think there, I've always felt that there should be much more simulation. And, and, you know, the great thing about computers and VR now is I think people can get much better trained before they walk in and start seeing those patients. But I'm sure you had some times when, you know, when you were an intern and you're walking in for the first time and you're sweating <laughs> and you're like, wow, wow, I, I hope this person doesn't realize I'm an intern. <laughs> My very first solo lumbar puncture, I will never forget. Uh-huh. So as you know, you're at this point, you're all you know, draped and prepped and you're staring at the person's lower back. And I put in the needle and I got out you know, the fluid I was looking for. Uh-huh. And I asked the patient who, of course, is faced away from me. I said, sir, how are you doing? And without saying a word, he produced a middle finger and rotated it <laughs> around behind his back so I could see it. I was like, okay, uh, I think that means I should wrap this up. But it's weird, Jill. I have this really indelible memory. And again, you know, the professors in medical school almost take on mythic status. Like when you're a student, uh-huh. they just seem so smart. And like you, you know, every word, you know, you just, you're, you're paying attention to. But I had this incredibly stern neurology professor. And he never, ever got emotional. He was completely unflappable. The only time I ever saw him weep, like openly weep, was the episode of ER where Dr. Green dies. Oh, okay. Um, And I was like, wow, this guy is so invested in this show. And it kind of just struck a chord with me. I was like, what is it about this drama that is having this otherwise completely stoic, you know, faculty member, you know, break down in tears in front of an entire auditorium of students. It was that powerful. Um, wow. Fr- frankly, one of the things I really liked about ER, especially as I was learning medicine, was it was like unafraid to use the real terminology. And funnily enough, George Clooney, apparently, um, who I think is a brilliant actor, had such a hard time remembering like all the complicated like nomenclature and vocabulary. It's probably like, posted like the, how to say it. Like, so the, the word and its phonetics were always like just out of like camera shot. And, and uh-huh. so George would have something to refer to, which I think is kind of adorable. Uh, but again, uh-huh. it just speaks to, um, you know, the accuracy uh, of that, of that particular show. That's funny. That's funny. And I think I told you guys this before, but, you know, I've actually watched very few medical shows. I don't know. I think there's something about being a doctor myself, growing up in a doctor household. Like we actually never watch doctor shows. Now, I will say on the flip side, I like police shows. So I'm, you know, I'm not a police officer. So maybe I, you know, I'm sort of living vicariously in another profession. But one really good show was a show called Scrubs, which was, you know, almost like a slapstick comedy. And I think one of the things that I liked about Scrubs, and we talked about this before, Four was Scrubs got the doctor stereotypes right, you know, yes. like the jerky surgeon kind of stereotype right, and you know, uh, you know the the high fiving orthopedic surgeons and that kind of stuff. And obviously, I'm speaking in general terms, but as doctors, we see these generalizations amongst yeah, people who pursue. Yeah. Absolutely right, and you know, I think what made the show really interesting is that it didn't pretend to be what it's not. It was sort of mark, uh, you know, uh, mining this vein of dark humor. And we actually, yeah. as physicians, often use humor to get through challenging situations. And I'm sure during your training, you found yourself like, maybe even while you were doing that LP, that lumbar <laughs> puncture, and the guy is throwing you a finger, you're like, that's actually the funniest thing that's happened to me. And, yes. and, and, what yes. I would, and what I would have told that guy is I would have said, sir, can you just move your knees up a little further? Can you scrunch into a ball a little bit more? <laughs> actually, what I was really thinking is don't violate my sterile field. But yes, exactly. Um, but no, that, I mean, you get, this is the thing is that it's hard for us to explain to people outside the profession that there are funny things in medicine without coming out across as incredibly unprofessional. And you're right. The thing I loved about Scrubs is I actually think it got away with more by owning 
uh, the satire. So because it was a funny show, I actually think the serious stuff almost hit harder. And my favorite character on that show, because I sort of recognize so much of him in many people I've encountered in my training, maybe you agree, is Mm -hmm. Dr. Cox, the attending. Mm -hmm. Now, he is a man of many, many flaws, and we can talk about what those were, but I actually kind of like the portrayal of... You know, this incredibly smart doctor is also very, very imperfect. One of my problems I have with these shows is when the doctors are, are too polished, they're too brilliant, they don't seem to have any blind spots, they don't seem to be really human. They're godlike, you know? Right, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think one of the reasons we watch this sometimes and we sort of roll our eyes is it's not realistic to expect anybody in healthcare to be quite like that. You certainly want to, you know, to be able to trust your doctors. You want to have confidence in their skill. But if we're coming off like we're omniscient, then I think that that is um, actually doing a disservice uh, to the patients who come to us. It is a very important point that people's perceptions of what their doctor will be, and and the same thing with like police too, is heavily influenced by what they see on TV. And again, if you see doctors who are doing the wrong thing, then obviously you'll have a perception that, you know, doctors act in this way. But I think part of what we wanted to talk about today was, you know, get a little bit more real. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Cox, frankly, borders on abusive to his trainees, and I'm not, <laughs> uh-huh. I'm not endorsing that. There was actually this fascinating study out of uh, Michigan State where they, they watched something like 270 episodes of primetime medical TV mm-hmm. and counted more than a thousand <laughs> examples of unprofessional behavior. Uh-huh. And my favorite, well, first of all, I love the fact that these, these researchers were sitting there doing that. I think that's great. It's almost like they had a little like counter every time you know someone did something bad. But my favorite stat to come out of this was on the show House. The main character, Gregory House, was personally responsible for 88% of the unprofessional <laughs> behavior, which I thought was so brilliant. And, you know, the thing about House, again, is I think what they over sort of uh, portray in him is his like godlike intelligence. But mm-hmm. in fairness, they more than counter that with his incredible you know, character flaws. He's quite the misanthrope. He actually has an addiction to painkillers. Uh-huh. Um, and so there, I think, you know, they do, of course, show uh, the good with the bad. But the thing that strikes me, JL, I just did a, a quick search. And like you, I don't I watch all the TV medical shows. I certainly don't have the time or the inclination. By my count, there are currently at least eight medical wow. dramas on television. And I know TV has gotten fractured and how we watch it and the services we use. But that to me is just like, again, just a testament that people really have an insatiable appetite for this kind of content. It's almost like there's not enough. And no matter how much uh, you've seen it in the past, you still will watch. And it's fascinating. I, I learned that you know screenwriters for these shows will actually dip into like case reports. So, you know, in the medical literature, mm really interesting presentations of disease. I know this sounds like almost perverse to talk about this way, but, you know, from time to time, if we've never seen something before and more to the point, if we think no one else has seen it either, we will write that and it will be published. And and it turns out that's actually like constant fodder for (laughs) screenwriters who are looking for for new content. Now, um, I, I do have to address the elephant in the room. And I know that some of our listeners are going to be upset about this. So maybe this will come with a trigger warning. (laughs) We have to talk about Grey's Anatomy. Okay. Oh, boy. I know. And I know it is super, super popular. And I know we're going to alienate some folks. It is, I think, in its 19th season. Amazing. I've actually only seen one episode of this show. And I'll tell you why. My wife and I watched the pilot. Mm -hmm. And at the very, very end of the pilot... Meredith Gray, the, the main character, is uh, I think it's her first day of surgical internship. I hope I remember this correctly. The part I do remember is my pediatrician wife watching an absolute horror and then swearing that she would never watch the show again. And she's held, <laughs> she's held to her word. So what happens is 
you know, standing for a long shift. Meredith walks by the newborn nursery, glances through the window, you know, looks through the glass, mm-hmm. and there's a baby turning blue. And and Meredith goes in and calls the attention of the neonatologist there to this baby who is clearly the wrong color. And I can't remember exactly what it said. Basically, the pediatrician like completely writes it off as uh, normal or nothing to worry about, which would never happen. But the even better part is then Meredith, as a first-day surgical intern, then takes that baby to the operating room and and fixes its incredibly complicated heart defect, which is just like every <laughs> part of that just completely boggles the mind and begs belief. But um, so that turned to us off from the show, but it has remained like immensely popular. And again, I know it's it's somewhat sensational. There's a, apparently an incredible amount of romance uh, on the show, other than frequently being called McDreamy in my real life. I don't really know what else that's about. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's fascinating to me that the people have sort of cracked the code. Of in all these different permutations, medical dramas are you know still um, such a staple of American entertainment. Sure, and, and you know uh, one thing in in my space, you know, in the addiction space, uh, there have been a number of television shows. You know, Intervention for sure has been one of those shows, and you know, almost every other talk show has tried to do some kind of intervention format, like Dr. Phil has done these as well. And you know, what I always say is. A well done intervention that gets somebody to treatment is not exciting. It's not sexy. Right. It, it, it right. there there shouldn't be fireworks. If it's done correctly, competently, it, it it passes without any of the drama. And I think you know that's also the case in medicine. Like medicine that's well done with real professionals is not exciting in any way. It's except that very at, at the very <laughs> right, exactly. So it's hard to have boring stuff on TV. TV needs to have exciting plot lines. You need drama. And at the end of the day, that's why we see what we see. But that's that said, I think I'm going to go back and maybe watch some Scrubs, maybe watch a couple of episodes, maybe catch a little bit of Grey's Anatomy for old time's sake. Uh, but uh, I'll probably turn to some other shows after that quickly, because, again, there's only so much medical shows I can take. Yes, you probably get enough of that, more than enough of that in your professional life. So let's take a break uh, and we come back. We should talk about, I think, what listeners should not be taking away from these shows. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Is It Serious? Where we're discussing the very serious topic of what medical shows get wrong. Yeah, so it's important to realize that these shows are not an instruction manual and not a substitute for medical school or residency training. <laughs> yes, we cannot say that enough. So I think there's there's probably such a thing as sacrificing entertainment for authenticity and that if you're too accurate, you drive away viewers. And so there's this show that just came out in the UK actually called This Is Going to Hurt. Mm. And um, apparently one of the screenwriters said, what has stuck with me most profoundly as a doctor is the sheer unfairness of it. And if you really try to portray that, the coldness of it, no one would want to see it. So I think that that's why you kind of start layering on things that are going to make people actually want to watch. 
you know, because the shows appear realistic in many ex- in many respects, the line between fact and fiction can get blurred quickly in terms of what's possible, what's real, what's magic, what's fake, what's not. Um, you know, I think every civilian probably thinks that they can perform a tracheotomy with a ballpoint pen because they've seen it so many times on shows. Like of all the crazy kind of procedures that you could ever do in an emergency situation, that's the one that people tend to focus on. Um, and there's actually a lot of uh, videos of uh, YouTube doctors uh, evaluating when people do this. And, you know, it's like, what what are you doing? You know? Right, exactly. Please please don't try this at home. And, um, (laughs) you know, every time I've been on a flight, I don't know if this has happened to you, and they say, you know, is there a doctor on the plane? Mm -hmm. I have never yet, knock on wood, had to perform a tracheotomy with a ballpoint pen. I've had to revive certain people from having low blood sugar. In one case, someone was having a allergic reaction, but I've not yet created a tracheostomy, and I hope I never have to. Actually, the the one time that I got called on a plane to attend to somebody was a guy who was sleepwalking in the plane and <laughs> was like touching people as he was sleepwalking. And then they woke him up and he fell down and started having like a seizure or something. Oh and that's the only time I've ever been called. I never had to cut into anybody, never had to do a, an emergency tracheotomy. You didn't have to, to establish this... a new airway. Good. <laughs> I, did, good. I did not at this point. <laughs> so- Jay, why don't we do this? Why don't we kind of quickly list for our listeners things that have have been gotten wrong on TV so they can, again, distinguish fact from fiction? All right. Well, I'll tell you, my number one, needles. Whenever you see a needle on a TV show or in a in a stock uh, uh, image or stock footage, you'll always see the thickest possible needle, like a 14-gauge or a 16-gauge needle, that if anyone ever put that into you without anesthetic would hurt like hell. Most of the time, people use very thin needles. You know, in my space where people will sometimes use uh, needles for uh, to take a drug, they'll use a tiny little needle, like a 28-gauge needle that you would use for... Uh, administering insulin, but the big thick needle, like putting a straw into somebody, that's the one that drives me really crazy when I see it. No, no harpoons for you. Yeah. No harpoons for me. That, you know, one one sort of easy sort of dramatic trope, I think, is cardiac arrest, which is obviously uh-huh. very real and very serious. The thing is, though, you and I know this, we've been through uh, what we call advanced cardiac life support training. Not every arrhythmia is created equal. And particularly what I'm getting at here is when they bring out the electrical paddles, the defibrillators. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, these days... Even in, you know, through the general public, we have these devices, AEDs, mm-hmm. that are actually smart enough. You put the pads on the patient who is in crisis, and it will tell you whether or not a shock should be administered. But what I always see happen on these shows, and I'm sure it bugs you too, is the tracing on the screen will flatline. <laughs> and then they start, you know, sending all this energy jolting through the patient. And, you know, there are certain arrhythmias that will respond to electricity, but frankly, the flatline ones things that we would call, you know, like asystole, uh, you're not expecting that that's going to, going to work. So that kind of drives me a little nuts. Right. And the one thing always with the defibrillator, they all, they're all, the characters are always so ready to yell out one word. What do they yell? Clear. Clear! Which is very dramatic. So uh, I think that's why they always include that. Another thing that drives me crazy is diagnoses. So often, now obviously you have to wrap up an episode. You only have 30 minutes or 60 minutes, so you can't wait that long to diagnose somebody. But uh, as we know, uh, as internal medicine guys, diagnoses can take a long time. There can be a lot of testing is required to finally figure out what's going on with somebody. Uh, as internal medicine guys, we like to say, we'll follow it to see what's going to happen as we gain gather more information. Yeah, It can take a lot longer than people think to diagnose somebody. Usually longer than 30 minutes for an hour. It's true. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one other thing that I, 
these shows sort of over portray, I think, is one doctor doing it all. Uh-huh. When in fact, you know, a lot of diagnostics are delegated, right? So my favorite example of this was a recent clip. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact uh, show. But basically, the, the doctor himself had to print out a patient's <laughs> genetic code to determine... <laughs> To determine what uh, sort of, you know, syndrome they had. The human genetic code, we've talked about the human genome in another episode, is 3 billion letters long. Now, I don't care how dedicated you are. I, I also would kind of question how much paper you have available, but that is, that is beyond ridiculous. Yeah, but that's what they were doing. They were just going to settle down and just read through this code. You know, after about 2 billion letters, I'll be honest, I think my attention has started to wander. Absolutely. So speaking of paper, there's also paperwork. So this is maybe a place that medicine, you know, sort of medicine TV shows and cop dramas overlap is that I suspect in real life, there's a lot of paperwork in both, but Mm -hmm. it's so unglamorous that you never actually see it on the screen. And, you know, a lot of the things that we do, again, are are completely unexciting, not sexy, you know, filling out insurance forms and, you know, family medical leave act, you know, documentation. It's just, you're not going to get eyeballs on the screen as we sit there doing that. And I think that part is uh, an omission, which I understand, but people also need to realize that is a huge and, uh, again, not particularly enthralling part of medicine. Another one that drives me crazy is on every one of these shows, the doctor-patient relationship always evolves into romance. And as we learn coming up, there is really no quicker way to lose your license than to start to have a romantic relationship with a patient. So that's one that they really miss on and I think really sets up a false notion of how doctors interact with patients. It's such a thick and necessary line in our professional lives that you will not cross. And so the fact it's even suggested that happens, I find almost offensive. But again, I know it makes for salacious drama. Right. This is going to sound like a very sad comment. I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you know, it's true. I think that they over portray our social lives. (laughs) At least during training, right? Like honestly, my residency, like, so the word residency, I think we talked about this before, but I should say it again. That meant we used to live in the hospital And now, even though our work hours are getting a little bit more regulated and humane, we still spend almost all of our waking hours in the hospital. I I don't mean to sound like I was antisocial. It's just there wasn't time. I didn't have the energy. Like I would do my shift. I would go home. I would sleep. I would wake up. I would do it again. And, you know, I understand why it's uh, trying to kind of fill out these characters. But there's way more like out of hospital socialization than I ever saw happening during my training. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the time when you're a resident, if you had time, you'd prefer to sleep as opposed to socialize, you know? That's right. That's right. Uh, Another thing, uh, again, this notion of doctors being all-knowing. We talked about uh, the doctor in-house. You know, I think this is a a big issue. Doctors are portrayed as being omnipotent, but more often than you would expect, doctors are as baffled as anybody else and need to do the workup, need to do the research, try to figure out what's going on with the patient. There's a lot of times we'll look at lab data. We say, I have no idea what this lab data means. I have no idea what this pattern is. A lot of it is building up the story, building up the research, trying to formulate a hypothesis as to what's going on with the patient. But it's rare that that one doctor raises his finger in the air and says, ah, I know exactly what this is. That almost never happens. The eureka moment. Yes, it's it's certainly the exception, not the rule. Yep. The last thing I wanted to point out in terms of inaccuracies, and I don't want to discourage people, honestly, but frankly, the success rate of CPR uh, on these shows is unfortunately much higher on TV than it is in real life. And again, that doesn't mean that we should stop trying to resuscitate people. Mm -hmm. It just means that I think we've almost set this expectation that 
that it always works. But it, it seems to work a lot more often on the shows than, than I would expect. But I think we just need to be realistic that you know if you're at the point where you're needing CPR, unfortunately, something catastrophic has already happened to you. And if I remember correctly, I think this was actually published in JAMA or the New England Journal, where they actually did a study where they looked at all the times that CPR was performed on TV and the success rate. And again, it was like 70, 80, 90%, some big number like that. And we know from our experience, it's, it's a lot lower than that. Yeah. So again, another one of those things where the perception is impacted by what you see on TV. And real quick, I think the reason that matters so much is you know, when people come into the hospital and we anticipate they might be critically ill, we actually will often ask them in advance, of course, you know, would you like to be resuscitated or not? So the reason I think this matters is I think it has shifted the public perception to have a higher expectation of success than we can truly offer. And that's the part that I think starts to, again, blur the line. Got it. I understood. All right. So look, I think the key takeaway here is listen to our show for medical facts <laughs> and watch the medical television shows for entertainment. And so before we go, JL, I have a little bit of personal trivia that actually uh, dovetails perfectly with this theme. So okay. as you know, I'm, I'm weird. I have a rare genetic syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, I, when I figured it out during my medical training, I wrote it up in a medical journal, much like that kind mm-hmm. of case report we talked about earlier. Okay. And this caught the eye of the lead medical consultant on House. Oh, wow. And to my eternal disappointment, if House had gone on one more season – Mm-hmm. I would have been, or at least my story would have been an episode. Wow. First of all, I'm sure uh, House, you know, the doctor would have absolutely destroyed me as a human being. After all the things we talked about today, it would have been really cool to see that narrative on the TV screen. Got it. Where did you publish that, by the way? It was in, <laughs> yes, it wasn't exactly People Magazine. It was the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Wow. Okay. And it wasn't until a year later, actually, that the screenwriter and uh, physician called. And at first, I actually thought it was a prank call. <laughs> I nearly hung up on her because no one else had shown any interest in it. But no, she persisted. She's a wonderful doctor. Her name's Dr. Lisa Sanders. She is an internist at Yale and she was the lead consultant on that show. Fascinating. And and for those listening, JCO is, you know, a what's known as a high authority journal. So congratulations on that publication. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. So JL, do you have any um, healthcare hacks for us? Yeah. So before we go, we always want to share some uh, insider information, what we call healthcare hacks. And uh, today I have a great one for you. So as you know, getting an appointment with your doctor, with any doctor can be hard. Sometimes people can wait months before they can see a doctor as a new patient, and it can be very frustrating. What most patients don't know is that docs generally have a lot of cancellations on their schedule. It's actually part of the reason why your doctor overbooks for the day is because there is often and people canceling the same day, which is sort of a pain. But the interesting thing is that those cancellations actually create an opportunity because as a patient, what you can do is if you're finding difficulty with getting an appointment with your doctor is you can call same day. Sometimes you can even call the night before to find out if there are any cancellations on the schedule. And sometimes you'll actually be able to find an opening on the same day. In a previous life, I was running a sports medicine clinic. So I used to see this in person. And what I found was that cancellations often tended to be worse on bad weather days, days where there was snow or heavy rain. Sometimes we might see as much as 25% of the schedule cancel. So on those days, if you know that you're going to have bad weather, call the doctor's office. You might be able to find an appointment. And my wife just recently had an OBGYN switched her practice. They were telling her it's going to be about two months to get an appointment. Uh, I told my wife, give give them a call every morning. And on her second try, she was able to get a same day appointment. So hopefully a little hack that helps people get better access to healthcare providers by knowing what's going on behind the scenes. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing that, JL. And that is all for today. So as always, thank you for listening. 
and we'd love to hear from you. If you have any <laughs> medical sightings on TV or in the movies that you find questionable, reach out, let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Lewis MD. And what about you, Joe? Well, I'd love to ruin everybody's entertainment by being a medical fact checker. So send everything that you have to me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'm also on Twitter at Jean-Luc Neptune, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. But if you have any other medical questions and you're looking for information, uh, you can call us at Offscript Health and leave a message and we might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855 855- Audio 66 AUDIO, and that's 855 283 4666. And now that we've brought everybody back to reality, I'll end with our disclaimer that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this is a show, actually, much like the shows we've just been discussing, that does not provide professional medical advice. So if you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. And we'll close out say, we want everybody to take care, and please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. 